The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. I'm Wes Kosova. Today on The Big Take, Bloomberg's Galit Altstein and Henry Mayer join me from Tel Aviv for an update on the Israel-Hamas war, including the rising number of civilian deaths in Gaza, growing international pressure on Israel to allow in more food and aid to address a dire humanitarian crisis, and diminishing expectations for a deal to free hostages Hamas seized when it attacked Israel in October. Galit, it's been several days now since Israel began its ground operations in Gaza. Can you tell us what is happening right now? We have been seeing um, extensive ground operations by the Israeli military that have started um, last Friday night. After earlier the so-called Swords of Iron War, the main focus earlier was almost only on aerial attacks and very limited and small ground raids. And that has changed over the past um, week or so. The extended um, ground operations, um, they have been moving forward at a faster pace, uh, I think it's safe to say, than anticipated even. And what we're seeing now mainly is um, large ground and infantry forces that are battling Hamas defenses. This is mainly happening now around um, Gaza City, which is in the northern part of the Gaza Strip, and in the western part of the adjacent small town of Jabalia, which is often, by the way, referred to as a camp. But I think that it does resemble more a small town in terms of the infrastructure there. Most residents of this area have also said to have fled the area and moved further down south. So we don't exactly know how many people um, there are at the time. Although this is um, thought to be a very crowded um, area and very densely populated area, it is not um, surely so at this time. We've seen um, intense fighting in this very heavily built landscape. Authorities in Gaza say more than 9,000 people in Gaza have died due to the war. And more than 1,400 Israelis were killed in the October 7th Hamas attacks. And Israel says 18 Israeli soldiers have died. And of course, there are 242 people known to be held hostage by Hamas in Gaza. Henry, Israel's bombing of the Jabalia camp that Gali was talking about really galvanized the world's attention. Israel said that it conducted this bombing because there were Hamas fighters and leaders in the camp, and yet many civilians died. Why did Israel decide to bomb this camp? Well, Israel has been saying all along that Hamas is using civilians as human shields. We see this um, again and again that uh, civilians are are getting killed in these airstrikes. Uh, you know, we had the incident with the hospital that happened earlier in the conflict when the health authorities reported up to 500 deaths in what they said was an Israeli airstrike on a hospital. Israel then came up with evidence that in fact this was a uh, rocket that was misfired by Islamic Jihad. You're going to have this again and again in this conflict, you know, incidents in which large numbers of civilians die and people 
you know, on either side are, are blaming each other for what happened. I think with the refugee camp, it's clear that Israel targeted Hamas operatives, uh, Hamas commander, but they did so in an area which was full of civilians, and therefore it was inevitable that you're going to get these kind of casualties. What is Israel's thinking about this problem of civilians being in harm's way? I think that on the one hand, Israel and the Israeli army have made a big point of um, asking Gazans, the, the civilians who reside in Gaza, especially in the northern parts, to move to the south of Gaza. And they have promised to create humanitarian zones there, both in the sense that they will not be attacked, these areas will not be attacked, and also um, promising that aid that is coming through the Rafah border with Egypt and, and promising that this aid will be navigated towards these humanitarian areas in the south. So that's one thing that Israel has done and has made um, a point of also telling the world about. But I think that, you know, with connection to the ground operation, time is a very um, important question and, and the so-called international community hourglass is definitely something that, that is on the table as, you know, conditions in Gaza get worse for the population and as the death toll rises. The question is how longer Israel will have the legitimacy to continue in terms of the international support that, that it's been getting, at least for most of its Western allies. So this might also um, affect ground operations in determining how long can Israel have an ongoing presence in Gaza rather than its forces going in and out um, for specific targeted operations. You know, from the Israeli side, we spoke to a senior government minister and ally of um, Prime Minister Netanyahu, and he, he put out this very optimistic picture that the number of civilian casualties would start to fall now. Of course, the reality on the ground uh, is that the numbers being announced every day by the health authorities in Gaza are still going up by several hundred per day. It's quite clear that for the time being, the number of deaths is going to increase at a very serious rate. And until the air campaign actually ends. Unfortunately, the humanitarian dimension of this is only going to get worse. Israel did cut off all electricity and water supply to the Gaza Strip as its retaliation started. I'm assuming that, that a lot of um, places in Gaza are disconnected from electricity unless they're using generators that need the, the fuel to, to work that Gazans um, say is also starting to, to run out. So, so that's on that. We have heard um, the Israeli army say that some of the water pipes, at least two of the three that exist and that work, were reconnected, but they were reconnected to the southern parts of Gaza and not to the northern parts. So we know that. And we also know that trucks that are coming in from the Rafah crossing with Egypt, they carry medicine, water and food. They do not carry fuel. Israel has totally banned that for now. But the number of the trucks is very low for now, just to, to give an idea, before um, the, the war broke out. So I think there were about 500 trucks going into Gaza per day. Now the UN says that the minimum would be 100 trucks of aid going in. And that is far from happening now. We see maybe um, 10, 20 trucks going in each day. But Israel has said over the last couple of days that this number is going to significantly go up. And that means that Israel is aiming to go somewhere near 100 trucks or, or, or a few um, tens of trucks each day and not as few as we've seen over the last um, weeks. Henry, despite the intensity of 
the ground operations in Gaza. You recently wrote that, in fact, this is what Israel is thinking of as a go-slow approach to this war. Yes, that's right. Obviously, Israel understands that the scale of the task, which it has set itself, as it put, to destroy Hamas, is not going to be achieved quickly. It can't be achieved quickly because that would require such an overwhelming use of force that would cause a far, far greater uh, humanitarian catastrophe, even than the situation we see today. What is in their strategy is to pursue, for several weeks at least, operations at the current level of intensity. They understand that they will have to scale that back at some point because of the level of international criticism. And that's why they will need you know, a much longer period to actually achieve their final objectives. And what I outlined in my story was that this will prolong the amount of time that you know Israel is operating in Gaza and therefore is going to make it very difficult for it to actually achieve those objectives. At some point, it may actually have to call the whole operation off because of the extent of international criticism. Henry, you also write that the military is trying to avoid a situation where they are fighting building to building and avoid the hundreds of miles of tunnels that Hamas fighters have built. Yes, the tunnels in particular are seen as the greatest danger for Israeli troops. They extend, according to Hamas, up to 500 kilometers. They're very well equipped. Uh, They have ventilation, electricity, some stretches deep as 30 meters uh, or more. And this is really a city within a city. This is where Hamas has its main military infrastructure. And Israeli soldiers who try to enter into those tunnels, they won't have an idea of the layout. They will be at a, at a, at a major disadvantage. And that's why the tactic is to try as much as possible to, to destroy the tunnels you know, without actually having to send people in. The complicating factor here is that more than 200 hostages who are being held in Gaza by Hamas, many of them are understood to be held underground. And that means that you know, if you use overwhelming force to try and, and destroy the tunnel system, you're also risking the lives of the hostages. This has direct connection to the fuel question, because the reason that Israel has been insisting so hard to ban fuel from entering the Gaza Strip, they say two things. They say, one, Hamas has fuel, and if it's missing, then, you know, the complaint should be referred to Hamas. And the second thing they say is that Hamas uses this fuel to ventilate these tunnels. And once they don't have it or they have a lot less of it, they can't ventilate the tunnels and they come out. The operatives and the commanders come out and then Israel can obviously attack them more easily. After the break, civilian deaths in Gaza spark international criticism of Israel. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. 
Henry, the growing humanitarian crisis in Gaza has certainly gotten the world's attention. We're starting to see leaders, including allies of Israel, like the U.S. and Joe Biden, starting to question Israel's military actions and tell them that they have to do something about this. Can you tell us what's happening with that? What we see is that the humanitarian situation in Gaza has provoked you know, major protests in London uh, two weekends in a row. You had tens of thousands of people coming out in pro-Palestinian demonstrations in other European cities. It was very interesting last Friday when the UN General Assembly voted on a resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. Only 14 countries voted against that resolution, including the, the United States, Israel, five Pacific Island nations and four smaller European countries. That really shows you that even among countries which support Israel's right to self-defense to retaliate against Hamas, there's a great deal of concern. They're very uncomfortable about the human costs of Israel's offensive in Gaza. And even Joe Biden, who in the beginning was firmly on the side of Israel and had not as much to say about what was happening in Gaza, is now speaking more about civilian lives there. Well, that's right. I mean, he's sending back his Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, to the region. Uh, Blinken is due to ar arrive in Israel on Friday. And you see the United States now calling for what it calls humanitarian pauses, not a full ceasefire, but a period of time which would be enough to allow aid to flow into Gaza. Until now, uh, Israel has absolutely refused any suggestions of you know, a halt to fighting. Its argument is that this would only allow Hamas a breathing space, time to reconstitute. The U.S. involvement um, in this particular conflict has been unprecedented. And Israel has always made a point of maintaining its independence in terms of what um, it can and wants to do in terms of military retaliation. And this has been a completely different situation, not only in the sense that the U.S. has sent over two aircraft carriers, but also in the very freak, frequent visits that we've seen here, especially from um, Secretary of State Blinken, also the U.S. President Biden. The ongoing reports on what they've been asking of Israel, at first it was um, a certain delay in the ground invasion in order to allow hostage negotiations, then the, the request for more humanitarian aid. And we've seen the U.S. very dominant here as opposed to the past. Gali, we're also seeing for the first time the border crossing with Egypt opening up, allowing wounded and sick people from Gaza to cross over into Egypt. What is happening with that? So actually, we're talking about two different groups of people who are um, allowed to leave Gaza into Egypt. And this is happening for the first time, actually, um, as we speak, since the Israeli army's retaliation started in early October. The first group we're seeing are groups of dual nationals, meaning people um, who are Palestinian but have um, another passport, or foreigners who are in Gaza that belong, you know, that work for various organizations and need to leave the place. On the other hand, we're seeing um, wounded Palestinians, like you mentioned, that are also allowed to leave Gaza. It remains to be seen whether this is connected with the Israeli notion of evacuating hospitals in Gaza as much as possible because Israel um, insists and has also shown proof that Hamas command center, centers were built in tunnels under these hospitals. So obviously they want the hospitals emptied so they can get to the people who are 
hiding underground. Henry, how is Israel responding to this enormous international pressure to do something about civilians in Gaza who are in harm's way? Israel is agreeing to allow more aid into Gaza. It says that the number of trucks coming in on a daily basis will increase to 100, which, it has to be said, is one-fifth of the pre-war level. In terms of the airstrikes, as we discussed before, their argument is that they have called on Gazans to move to a safer part of that territory, the southern part, and that they will try to avoid targeting them. But, you know, as what we have seen, those airstrikes are still continuing across the entire Gaza Strip. We'll have to see in the coming days whether the death toll actually starts to decrease. But that is the stated Israeli goal. You mentioned earlier calls on Israel to pause, to give time for civilians who are still in the way to move and to tend to sick people, to get food and other supplies into Gaza. Do you think that Israel would do that to stop the fighting for some length of time? Do you know the U.S. is asking for humanitarian pauses to allow more aid into Gaza and There have been instances in the past that Israel has responded to U.S. pressure. For example, after the ground operation started last week, internet and mobile phone communications were cut entirely to Gaza. And the U.S. demanded that Israel uh, allow their services to resume. So I think that it's entirely possible that this is one of the objectives of Antony Blinken's visit to Israel. When we come back, can a deal be reached to free the hostages? The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Galit, earlier Henry had mentioned the question of the hostages who still remain in Gaza. There has been a lot of negotiations led by Qatar. Do we know exactly where that stands now? We were recently told by the head of Israel's National Security Council that as of now, there is no hostage deal in sight, that negotiations um, were not going anywhere. And he actually said that Qatar has realized that Hamas was misleading them, quote unquote. He said that at a press briefing. So there is no news on that front. Over the last weekend, just before the accelerated ground operation in Gaza started, There was a lot of chatter about um, the negotiations moderated by Qatar moving forward very quickly. And we heard a lot of Israeli officials say these reports are just meant to delay Israel's ground invasion and also say that at this point, on the contrary, what can maybe pressure Hamas to release more hostages is more military pressure, even a ground invasion, rather than withholding it. So that has sort of been the dynamic over the last week or so. If these negotiations are stalled, does that mean hope for these hostages ultimately being freed is now diminishing? Hope is definitely diminishing. 
I've spoken to a representative of the families of the hostages and definitely before the ground operation began, there was some feeling that things were starting to move in the right direction. The position of the families of the hostages, and that's interestingly one that gets support from people in the security establishment. A former defense minister said that he supported the idea of what is known as all for all. In other words, swapping all the hostages for all the Hamas prisoners in Israeli prisons, several thousand. You know, the government ruled that out and it's now taking what is seen to be a very hard line. And that has created a great deal of anxiety. And the issue is that the Israeli public has been very supportive, of course, of the military operation and has considered the hostage issue to be a secondary one. We'll have to see whether that changes. Gali, a lot of attention is on the fighting in Gaza, but that is not the only place where Israel is fighting. There is also conflict in its border to the north with Lebanon and Hezbollah. Can you tell us about that? What we've been seeing there for a few weeks now is a sort of constant back and forth fire exchanges between um, Hezbollah and, by the way, not only Hezbollah, but also some Palestinian groups who are positioned in Lebanon. So we've seen back and forth fire between them and Israeli forces. We've seen them trying to target Israeli military posts along the border. We've seen them trying to fire mortar shells at Israeli settlements that have mostly been evacuated along the northern border. And we've seen Israel retaliate to these shooting attempts firing back at the sources of fire. And um, we've also seen some attacks that took place not in Lebanon, but in Syria, because some uh, of the shooting came from there. Israel has not publicly admitted um, responsibility for these Syria attacks, but they have definitely taken place. Israel, at this point, I would say, is retaliating to um, Hezbollah and other groups shooting into Israeli territory and making a strong point of, at this time, only retaliating and at the same time using very aggressive rhetoric and saying that it is very well prepared, both on the offensive and defensive side, to do anything it needs to do to protect Israel's um, security and its security interests. A lot of eyes are looking at that and looking at how that plays out. Henry, all of this raises the question of the possibility of this war spreading and becoming a more regional conflict. Is there a feeling that the chances of that happening are rising or falling as a result of recent days? I think that the risks of a spillover, of a conflict, of an escalation are definitely significant. That is one of the main reasons why the Americans are, are so involved, trying to ensure that Israel limits the scope of, of its offensive. It hasn't actually been that successful in that. And I think this is what is concerning people. Ultimately, whether it spreads to Lebanon and Hezbollah gets sucked into the conflict also depends very largely on Iran's calculations and, and whether they're willing to wage that kind of more or less a direct conflict. You know, we do see a lot of attacks on U.S. military interests on bases in Iraq and in Syria. For the moment, it seems to be containable, but something unexpected can happen. It can light a spark uh, that can make this conflict spread. And it's very hard to anticipate how that might happen. Khalid, obviously things are changing very quickly and there's a lot to keep track of. What are you watching as you continue to report? 
We mentioned this, uh, but I will mention it again. Also, what happens on the northern front um, is Hezbollah is considered to be a much more powerful enemy for Israel than Hamas in the sense that it um, has a very large uh, missile arsenal. It can be a much bigger threat to Israel's home front. And of course, what will happen in Gaza the day after Israel says or declares, you know, it has possibly won the war. Who is going um, to rule the Gaza Strip if Hamas is brought down and um, cannot rule there anymore as far as Israel is concerned? Who will take over? This is a very complicated question that is already being discussed, but I think the answer, at least at this stage, is very far from being clear. In Israel, there has been um, chatter, and I would call it chatter at, at this stage, about um, perhaps after Israel pulls out of Gaza, maybe a professional government, a technocrat government, is put into place to rule Gaza for something like two years ahead. And then after that, there will be general elections, both in Gaza and the West Bank, and that will determine who will rule both um, Gaza and, and the West Bank. So that's one thing that is being talked about. In terms of military threat to Israel, there's a lot of talk about setting a perimeter, maybe a kilometer or two kilometers into the Gaza Strip, where no one is able to enter under any circumstance in order to protect the southern vicinities of Israel. The really bigger picture here is how this is going to affect the U.S. efforts to try and remake the Middle East. It's been pushing for a peace agreement to establish diplomatic relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel. And the U.S. has said openly that it believes that Hamas's attack was aimed at sabotaging this. So, you know, how the Israeli campaign goes, exactly you know, how much criticism, international criticism is generated, whether it's able to achieve its objectives, is going to be critical to determining how this plays out. You know, the US, as I said before, it, it's making every effort to try and prevent this from spitting out of control. I do sense still among Israeli officials they are confident that they can pull it off, that they can degrade Hamas sufficiently, perhaps not destroy them entirely, but make sure that they do not represent a military threat anymore to Israel and at the same time maintain the diplomatic relations they have with Arab nations and even find the possibility to reach an agreement with Saudi Arabia. Henry, Galit, thanks for taking the time to speak with me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us questions or comments to bigtake at bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicki Bergolino. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. Federica Romaniello produced this episode. Hilda Garcia is our engineer. Our original music was composed by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back on Monday with another Big Take. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more 
at cutter economic forum.com